Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. The gateless gate, or the gateless barrier, Cornell has translated, is a collection of Zen Buddhist koans from the 1200s of the Common Era. Koans are teaching tools in some Buddhist traditions. The most famous one asks, what's the sound of one hand clapping? A koan from that collection tells of a Zen master, Gatai. When a disciple would come to Gatai and ask a question about Buddhism, Gatai would hold up one finger. That's all he did in his teaching. He held up one finger for any question that was asked. Gatai had a young disciple, a boy named Tenru. Soon, when anyone would ask about the teachings at the monastery, Tenru would hold up one finger. When his teacher Gatai heard about this, he went searching for Tenru and cut off his finger. It's a little harsh in the monasteries. Naturally enough, Tenru screamed and ran away. Gatai called to him, and the boy stopped and turned. And when he did, Gatai held up one finger, and the boy was instantly enlightened. When he was on his deathbed, Gatai said to his gathered disciples, All I know of Zen is Tenru's finger. Now, the editor of that volume from the 1200s offered this comment about that koan. He said, Enlightenment, which Gatai and the boy attained, has nothing to do with a finger. If anyone clings to a finger, Tinru will be so disappointed that he will annihilate Gatai and the finger altogether. So, what the heck does that mean? Well, that's just it. It uh, doesn't mean anything. That's the first mistake. If upon hearing the story you were not already enlightened or instantly enlightened uh, by that, then you are not going to get it. Uh, you can't get it if you think about it. It's not a story about a finger. Conceptualize and you can't get it. Another koan, what happens to my fist when I open my hand? And no, it's not a story about a fist or a hand. But wait, you may be thinking, aren't religions and philosophies all about concepts? Isn't that all they do? Which is a very good question. Stick with me and explore awakening, enlightenment a little bit this morning, and I will make a case for something I'll call Zen humanism. <laughs> now, the book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, was published by the psychologist William James in 1902. 
By most accounts, it was the most important book of nonfiction written in the 20th century. All religions, William James claims, have a common nucleus. The first being a sense that there's something wrong about us as we naturally are. There's something wrong about us as we naturally are. And the second being a sense that we're saved from that wrongness by making proper connections. As I said last week, my contention is that the something wrong with us actually is human consciousness itself. We just don't know how to be conscious social animals. And the natural human response to that feeling of unease is to try to find a cure for it. Now, I quickly add that we don't always know that we've chosen something for a cure. Look around you, alcohol, food, drugs, greed, selfishness, violence, all of these and a whole lot more. They all can feel like a cure for that unease for a while. Now, William James founded the psychology department at Harvard. His brilliant insights into the core of religion spring from his unique and pioneering application of psychology and emotion into the study of human religions. William James was, yes, a person of his time, and he mistook aspects of Christianity that he thought then were truisms for all religions. A lot of that was wrong. Still, his insight that religions function for actual human beings as emotion not theological concepts, was an important stepping stone to get the xenophobic Western world out of our own heads. And it got us down the road some way toward understanding that Zen koan. Religious thinking is actually religious feeling. It is necessarily preconceptual. You know how in cartoons, when a character runs off a cliff and doesn't fall until they realize it? A fulfilling religion is like that. It feels great, but if you start messing with concepts, you realize there's no there there in any religious thought. It's emotion all the way down. It's pre-verbal and it is pre-conceptual. William James phrased it this way, but why, in the name of common sense, need we assume that only one system of religious ideas can be true? The obvious outcome of our total experience is that the world can be handled according to many systems of ideas and is so handled by different people and will each time give some characteristic kind of profit for which he cares to the handler while at the same time, some other kind of profit has to be omitted or postponed. Why, in the name of common sense, need we assume that only one system of religious ideas can be true? That's a good question. Why do people practice particular religions? For some, of course, it's coercion. You're forced to fit into a particular religion. You were born there. For others, it's purely cultural. Yeah, you were born there, and, but it's my religion now, and it feels right. So we've got the cultural aspect. We've got the coercion aspect. Also, we have the community aspect. A religion can provide a grounded, extended network of human relationships. Coercion, culture, community. 
I think those are the first big three for why people stick with religions. And then there's a fourth reason, because it makes sense of your existence in the nature of reality. And that's the one that converts usually come to. Ah, the religion I was born into doesn't make sense of things, but this one over here does. And so I'm going to pursue that. But wait, you may be thinking, religions and philosophies may or may not be all about emotion, but religions and philosophies are concept-generating machines, aren't they? That's why we have seminaries and whole master's programs and whole PhD programs to understand them. And yeah, you're right about that. For example, you're invited this afternoon at 4 p.m. The downtown clergy will be meeting at Plymouth Congregational Church. You know where that is probably. You can look it up. We'll be having a panel discussion on the concept of redemption. You're invited. There will be representatives of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and me. <laughs> and I'll be giving a Unitarian Universalist humanist perspective on Redemption. And, well, wait, it's a concept, right? In the tradition I was born into, Pentecostalism, the answer to what redemption means is lay it at the foot of the cross and be washed in the blood of Jesus. That's the answer. Amen. In that tradition, sin and redemption are between you and God. It's no one else's business. Judge not, lest you be judged, we say. And, and that is biblical. People outside Pentecostalism are skeptical about the way we do things in Pentecostalism. How can some high-profile preacher get caught absconding with funds and sleeping with prostitutes and all he has to do is let go and let God and everything's okay? Where's the justice in that? To which... Pentecostal people will reply, there is no justice on this earth. The principalities and powers of human government are the work of Satan. The only justice is divine justice. Human justice is a farce. And that is one extreme. Unitarian Universalism and humanism are on the opposite extreme. Now, to be honest, also a bunch of our mainline Christian denominational friends are also on our extreme. Absconded with funds? Call the FBI. Prostitutes? Time for a sex offender treatment program. Secular redemption is what I will call that. You do your time. You get your certificate for taking a program. And we say... Justice has been done. The paperwork goes into your file. But where is the redemption? Is it social redemption in that case? Individual redemption? Is there any actual forgiveness? Who would do the forgiving? So this is two concepts of redemption. Wash clean in the blood of the Lamb or let the system deal with it. Secular redemption is slow and plodding and partial. Pentecostal redemption is quick and all-encompassing. And no, 
Pentecostals do not draw a line between religious sin, doubt, that kind of thing, and secular crime. There's no difference. It's all sin. I would argue that Unitarian Universalism does not have a cohesive concept of redemption for a couple of historical reasons. One is that the Universalist side of the house historically downplayed God's retributive justice. You're not going to burn in hell anyway, so don't be all that worried about it. And the Unitarian side of the house never exactly gave up the idea of predestination. If you commit a sin, it's because you never were actually saved anyhow, and so you are out of covenant. Both yous, in other words, have an odd view of punishment and redemption. How do you punish sin? In quotes. Both the Universalists and Unitarians, and now the Unitarian Universalists, have used long-term shaming and shunning. Psychologist Jolanta Burke distinguishes between guilt and shame, and it's a little hard to pick these apart, but it's good to think about it a moment. When you feel guilty, she says, you think that you did something wrong. That's obvious. When you feel shame, you feel that there's something wrong with you for doing something. And you see the difference. Guilt, then, is when your own moral compass is working. Shame is when a community is imposing their moral compass on you. In small New England villages, there where the majority of church members had exactly the same social assumptions, shaming and shunning were extremely effective. It's still effective among the narrow band of upper middle class Euro-Americans, but it's a very small group. In our multi-ethnic world, with social class in the mix, things begin to break down. It's not a New England green anymore. Shaming only works if everyone agrees on a certain set of social norms. Shunning only works if the shunned person cares about being excluded from the community. Otherwise, what the heck? And so Unitarian Universalism joins humanism and frankly most mainline churches, I would argue, in choosing secular political and therapeutic ways to punish. Clink or shrink, as we say out there. Clink or shrink, then it's fixed. And thus, we reinforce a system built on a heaping helping of upper middle class Euro-American assumptions. Back to that New England village green. We also call those assumptions white supremacy these days. Now, which of the two things I've described to you are better in terms of actual redemption? Well, better is one of those concepts that the Zen Buddhists would tell you, don't have one, don't do that. When we break things down into good and bad, and good, better, best, and bad, worst, worst, we're applying social norms that we have internalized as a set of cultural assumptions. And again, back to concepts again, right? We project those things which we deem good, better, best, then pursue those things that we consider important within the social confines of a particular group. And then we call that the good. I'm doing the right thing. 
but the good turns out to be largely about assumptions based in class and race. So wait a minute, where is the foundation? How do we get out of that mindset? How do we become enlightened? So here's my proposal for you. I'm going to talk about Zen humanism, well, or Zen Unitarian Universalism, whichever. Can we imagine a Unitarian Universalism without concepts is my question. Hmm. What would it be like? Are UUism and humanism so caught up in concepts that they're only a finger held up, nothing more, and if the finger's cut off, would there be any meaning left within the conceptual assumptions? Now, let me think about some advantages to Zen humanism for a moment. First, Zen humanism would occur with a sudden realization, just like that enlightened moment maybe. And what would you decide? Well, dualism doesn't exist. There's simply no difference between matter and mind, body and spirit. It's all one, as our Zen Buddhist friends would tell us. Secondly, I think it would be about non-judgment, another big thing in Buddhism. It's the toughest of human emotions to control because we judge based on a visceral reaction within social norms, usually, right? And those cloud our knowledge. Zen humanism would be awake enough to distinguish between the so-called good of social and cultural assumptions among an us versus a good among them. Let's be very careful not to judge between us and them or this and that. Thirdly, if we accept the premise that religious and philosophical positions are true when they work, and I'll get back to that in just a moment, that's one of William James's central ideas, that they're true when they work for the people who are practicing them. Then the conclusion is very clear why would we judge a Muslim for being Muslim? Why would we judge a Roman Catholic for being Roman Catholic? Why would we judge a Presbyterian for being Presbyterian? It doesn't matter. Your tools work for you. My tools work for me. And we can all be happy here. Then fourthly, Zen humanism would embrace nuance and subtlety, something completely missing from our national conversation. If we start from the assumptions that most political thought is mere convention and most social norms contain unexamined prejudices, then we're beginning from a place of humility. Humility that requires self-examination. Why do I really think that? Humanism, boiled to its essence, is about the ethics of social responsibility. I say that over and over again. It's not a an individualist morality. It's a social norm and social relationship. Relational ethics, it's called nowadays. Ethics based in real human relationship. And that stops going into stereotypes and cliches about other people and other ways of being. It's about relying upon our own experience as human beings alive in the world, not on theories and concepts and the one finger ceases to be the only story when you think in that way. 
No, it's not true that everything can be true. Can be true. I mean, William James dealt with that very quickly. No, everything is not true. That's not it. The next book that William James wrote after Varieties in 1902 was Pragmatism, a new name for some old ways of thinking. There he reconsiders what he called common sense in the quote that I showed you today. Now James puts the idea into classic pragmatic terminology, calling ideas tools. Central to pragmatism, ideas are tools, screwdriver, hammer, etc. Pragmatically, if a tool works, it works. And within pragmatism, therefore, it's true. If it works for you, it's true. What if it doesn't work, or what if there's no way to see if it works or not? Well, then it's not true. It's pretty easy. Religious experience, mystical experience, philosophical experience, if you don't feel it, it's not there. So, what about that sense that there is something wrong about us as we are? Yes, we have that. We're bound to search until we feel an answer. No concept is going to fix that feeling. It just won't. It's got to feel right. Zen humanism is humble about all of that, I would argue. What I say and what I know does not explain everything there is. I know that. I don't have all the answers. I don't even understand all the questions. So what am I pontificating about? Well, I'm just saying we don't know, and that's okay. The world, the real one, where we live and breathe and have our being, as Paul would say, is compromised and imperfect. Yeah, it is. Look at the news. But still that's okay, right? Whoever said that reality would be some other way? And as I often say, if someone said it should be better, look at what they're trying to sell you. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.